It's Golden Hour Adventure Time, featuring everyday people doing extraordinary things. From the peaks of victory to the valleys of defeat, these are their stories. Now, from the back of the pack, your hosts, Justin and Robbie. Welcome to Golden Hour Adventures. Today's show, we have Tony Russ. Tony Russ has quite a few interesting stories that we're going to get to. So, uh, welcome to the show, Tony. Uh, thanks for having me. Tell us a little about yourself. Well, uh, let's see. I started running marathons. I think I tried uh, my first marathon in 2008. Um, and that just kind of lit the fuse. I didn't finish it. I only made it 17 miles. And anytime I don't accomplish something, it's like just nags at me. So I went back the next year. I actually went back on my bicycle. <laughs> you rode your bike there? I rode my bike across the country, actually. And then ended ended it with my first marathon. So... Did you get <laughs> off the bike at the yeah. start? Well, nah. Nah. I, I did a weird cross country. It was from Arkansas to Wisconsin. And then across to Portland, Oregon. <laughs> My marathon was in the Bay Area. I wanted to ride the coast, but I didn't have time before the marathon. So I just uh, took a train. And with basically no running, I was just biking every day, about 50, 60 miles a day. So I had good fitness, but not any running muscles, which at that time I really didn't have anyways. (laughs) (laughs) My first marathon made me feel like a real old man. And, uh, from then on, I was hooked, man. I just like, I I went back for that marathon probably every year for like four years. Is it on a trail or road or? It's a trail marathon. It was Ann Trayson's, uh, race actually, uh, in the Berkeley Hills. I picked a really hard marathon to start with. Is that the Golden Hills? Golden Hills trail marathon. Yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. I've heard some good stuff on that one. Yeah, and the crazy thing is they're doing a 50, too. And I always just thought those people were just insane. I didn't really think much of them. Like, oh, those are just crazy people. Marathons are as much as people should do, I I thought. And then I got into, you know, Born to Run, the book. And then I went down to Mexico, ran my first 50 down there. Um, And... That, just, that that was like a butterfly effect. That changed my life and changed my friend group, everything to where I was just in the ultra world after that. And from then on, you know, you got to go up to doing 100. And eventually, like, 100's not even enough. So I got up doing some big adventures, like 500-mile adventures. And... um. Well, this last year I did Cocodona 250. That's the longest race I've, I've done, like a continuous race. So that's that's like kind of the the way I got into running, but it's definitely become a part of my life now at this point. Tell us about your Cocodona experience. Uh the most recent, yeah. Um, well. <laughs> I actually got a kind of crazy story about that. Um, I don't, I don't think I'm like everybody else the way I approach running. It's, 
it's more about the the life of it. So I've always, well, I've come around to thinking that it's more about the journey than the destination. And so to tell you about Cocodona, I'd have to tell you about the thousand of the thousand miles I ran for training the two months before. So I had a couple of 500 mile months to get ready for it. Um, oh, 500 mile months. Yeah. I had a, <laughs> I had a 600 mile block of four weeks. Jeez. Can you break that down for us? Cause that just seems like insane. Like, I think I've only run 1,300 miles this whole year. So <laughs> saying that yeah. you ran 1,000 okay, so, miles. God. So it actually, it actually started with this March challenge that my friend challenged me with last year where you run a mile for every day of the month. So one mile day one, two miles day two, 31 miles on day 31. Yo, I've heard of that. It That sounds... Yeah, there's no way out. It like mile, it like day ten. I'd be like, yeah, I'm done with this. So my, uh, day nineteen last year is when I was like, ah, this is this is too much. I had too much going on in life, and I just couldn't do it. So this year, I was like, oh, I should do that. I like I said, I hate failure, and I always try to remedy that with the uh, with finishing it. So this year, I, I did, <laughs> and around day seventeen. I was like, man, I'm feeling pretty good, actually. I I had COVID on February 28th, and I knew I was going to do this March challenge, and it wasn't going to stop me. I had I was feverish; I could barely walk God. on February 28th. Like I thought I was going to die for a minute there. I was just like, all right, well, next day it's only one mile. I could do that. I was still a little feverish, but I got out and did the one mile, and. Like day 10 was probably the hardest because COVID lag, it lingers and it stayed with me for a couple of weeks and early, it's about 10 days because day 10 was real hard, still fatigued. And, um, but I got through that, got to like day 17 ish and was like, oh, I'm feeling good. I'm going to, I'm totally going to do this. And now I want to sign up for Cocodona. Uh, I just really, really missed out on it last year. Last year I worked for our Viper and I was so jealous of everybody that got to start that race. So that's uh, about when I messaged my buddy, Steve, who's the race director. And I was like, man, I can't really afford that because <laughs> it's a pricey one. Uh, so he was like, Oh man, we'll work it out. Don't worry. And we did a, a little work trade where I worked a few days actually before the race. I was like loading the food for the race. <laughs> Most people are resting, but I'm out there till 10 p.m. like loading trucks. <laughs> at least you know what you're going to be able to eat. <laughs> I knew all the food that was going to be at every aid station. For sure. That's awesome. He put Working you to work. <laughs> he put you to work. Oh, yeah, man. I had one day of rest before the race. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so uh, the buildup on that March challenge brings you to like, yeah, a hundred and seventy mile week eventually, with with the final week, um, and then I followed that up with a hundred and thirty mile week, and then came back to another hundred and seventy mile week, and then my foot started to hurt. <laughs> I, I, actually, <laughs> I actually reeled it in quite a bit after that. I was like 40, 50 miles. For the next couple of weeks, you got to tell us what you're running. Uh, sandals. 
I'm running Luna sandals. Oh my god! Yeah, every step. <laughs> and I can't even I can't even understand how you people do it in shoes. I really can't. I don't get it. <laughs> I mean, there's got to be something that's worse out there, right? 170 miles a week in sandals. I mean, like, are you running with no pants on? I mean, what what else can you? <laughs> <laughs> There's got else, like <laughs> pair of shorts and some sandals, man. That's uh, all you really uh, need to run. Luna sandals. Really if you know where to find water, that's all you need. Yeah, you know where to find water. <laughs> did you, Did you run Coca Dona in the whole, in sandals the whole thing? Or yeah. Okay, yeah. so you don't you don't run in shoes at all then? No. Wow. No. Wow. But I always I like to challenge myself with like trying to find the harder, more technical races. That's why Mogion Monster's always been my jam. I've heard, I've heard Mogion's the, uh, as far as like one of the most difficult ones in the U.S. as far as technicality behind yes. it. Yeah. That's what yeah, I've Yeah, the heard. gain is significant, but you look at the elevation profile and it's not that scary. But you get out there and you're like, wow, these miles are way slower on these rocks. <laughs> well, imagine certainly so in sandals. Yeah, well... I kind of think it's actually my advantage when it gets really technical because I already run very careful. I'm already watching every step. I can't, I can't not. I know what it feels like to kick rocks and it does not feel good. <laughs> so after you do that a few times, you can't help it. Be careful. And I already run with a careful nature. So I feel like it's actually to my advantage. It's as funny as that sounds. So what got you in, what got you in the sandals? Like, where did that journey start? Was that uh, the one that, to run? That was going down to Mexico and, uh, running with the Taramara. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I was in uh, minimalist shoes to start. Um, but I, I went down there and I wasn't that fast. I, I probably ran like a 10 hour 50, but I got like old ladies in sandals passing me. In, in like a skirt <laughs> and and it was then I rethought everything you know <laughs> like, well maybe I don't need a lot of gear maybe I don't need all this stuff they walked 30 miles to get to the race and now they're passing me all right I'm gonna check myself <laughs> a little bit and uh ter turns out like I started wearing sandals just 10 miles in a 50 mile race just to let my feet breathe and you know i wouldn't get blisters and i was like oh that's pretty good i like i like sandals for that and then soon enough every time i put the shoes back on my feet started to hurt and my race would go to shit and i it's like why do i keep putting my shoes back on it doesn't make any sense i'm just gonna commit and i never trusted the sandals until i started running full races in them I was like, oh man, I can get through a whole 50, a whole hundred in the same pair of sandals. Never take them off. My shoes, I was having to change constantly because they'd always bug me. So, are you wearing, are you wearing socks in these um, races or just no socks? I do always wear the toe socks. Okay. Yeah. 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 Otherwise, around 18, 20 miles, inevitably, I get a blister in between the toes. Um, but with the socks, I can go a long time and no blisters. People trip out when I take my socks off at the end of a race. After Coca Dona, I took my socks off, and everybody's just like, "What? You don't have any blisters? Your toenails are fine. 
like your feet are good. I mean, my feet hurt. I had a <laughs> injury, but every nobody could see that. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, I kind of pride myself in in running careful enough that I don't get blisters. And once I start to feel this, uh, actually, uh, somewhere in Cocodona around mile one seventy, I had to take it easy and rest for a couple hours because I started to feel a blister like under the ball on my foot. And that was one of the first times I'd ever felt that. So I was just like, all right, I'm going to take a break, let that heal. And it never bothered me for the rest of the race. I don't know. What mile was that up? Like 170-ish, some, somewhere in there. Jeez. So we still had another, what? <laughs> yeah. yeah miles ago or something? 70. <laughs> 70 at that point. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, 70. Or 80. Or 80. My, my math is off there. <laughs> my um, <laughs> but yeah, so that, you know, all that leading into Cocodona was the journey all in itself because I was, I was working full time, trying to do stuff at home, growing a garden, having a relationship. It's, still life all happening, you know, and Matt, like I was basically like getting up early, running, going to work, then going home, running, staying up till midnight, some nights, getting up early again. I work at a coffee shop It's real early. We got to get up and then doing it all again every day, day in and day out for two months. Jeez. Or I guess not the end of that, but it was a lot. <laughs> Is and that so, doing doubles or? Yeah, I would, I would definitely break up a lot of my runs when I was doing like 30 miles in a day or something like that. A lot of times I'd do 15 and 15 or even 10, 5, 10, 15, like break it up however I had to, however I had time. I've never done a, a, a very like super high mile week. And I've always thought like I would, I don't know. I just always thought it would be kind of cool to do a hundred mile week, you know, not counting a race. I've done hundred mile with a race yeah. in there, but just, yeah. just do a hundred mile week. And I've always thought that'd be really cool, but I would assume that, yeah, you're definitely, you know, I mean, nothing compared to your 170, but I, for me, a hundred, hundred mile week would be really cool. And I think that's kind of a goal, but I just kind of want to do it randomly. Like, you know, middle of December, just go for it. <laughs> you know, nothing, yeah. nothing crazy, like no race prepping for it. Just like, all right, let me see where my fitness is at. But I would definitely think you'd have to break it up, you know, yeah. Do a, a 20 miler, a five and a 15 or whatever it may be, you know. I got a buddy, uh, Andrew Glaze, who I ran Cocodona with. Uh, I think he's got some kind of crazy streak, like 70 or 80 mi- 80 weeks of 100 miles every week. Whoa. Yeah, I follow him on Instagram and I always see that he posts. Uh, I'm, I, don't know I'm, how he does I follow it. him too. He's he's insane. Yeah, he just, uh, yeah. He just ran UTMB, I believe, right? Uh, probably. I mean, the guy's running all the time. <laughs> I don't know how he does it. <laughs> and he's a firefighter and he works, you know, shift. Oh, yeah. work, so he runs yeah. around. The, I see him running and around the station. Family. And he's a, he's a family man too. Crazy. Wow. Oh, I mean, that's people that can, you know, find time to do that. I highly respectful. You know, I, I, I can't, I got, I, you know, I got to get up early in the morning to go to work. And so I'm just like, I don't know if I can get up at two o'clock in the morning to go get a run in. So I'm an afternoon runner, but I have a lot of respect for those people that get up real early before work. And then sometimes, you know, hit a double in the afternoon or man, crazy to me. Yeah. Hours kind of have to stop mattering a little bit. Just 
whenever you have a little, if it's 2 a.m., you know, just get out there with your headlamp. Crazy. Because, <laughs> I mean, especially preparing for a race like Cocodona where you're going to run through the night. Um, few nights, right? <laughs> a few nights, yeah. It turned out, turned out to be three nights. Uh, three nights? <laughs> yeah. So leading up to, um, after all that training, how were you feeling when you got to the starting line that morning? Um, I felt like I had rested my foot to the point where it had healed a little bit, but I was still feeling it slightly. So I was a little worried. Um, so I didn't have originally, you know, when I was training and getting these big weeks, I was like, man, I might be able to compete in this race. Like I might actually, I might actually really go for it. But by the time I got to the race and I hadn't really completed my training the way I'd hoped, I didn't really have those aspirations. So, um, the start line was a little, I was a little iffy at the start line. So I took a, a hit of LSD. And that, uh, that did something anyway. I would imagine so. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I made the uh, the first seventeen miles pretty cool. <laughs> Were you just walking? Oh no, I was uh, up with the lead pack. Really? Was, yeah, my buddy Michael Versteeg. I like. I've never. I haven't gotten to run a race with him. I don't know in a long time, and I just know he's going to go out fast. And if I want to run with him, it's at the beginning. <laughs> and so, he so wasn't like, oh, run, he not. wasn't running or walking he was flying <laughs> no nah, he, he, i mean he starts out kind of chillish yeah um, i was talking so about I you never, just I, taking a hit of lsd before race yeah so that uh you know it felt like i had access to cheat code um <laughs> to the whole running thing like a video game for a little while were you mario yeah. out there or no, I just it was just I was just flying. Everything just felt like smooth and just fun, and I didn't need much water. Didn't feel like at the time. <laughs> I'm guessing you didn't need any food either, huh? <laughs> well, so yeah, so I get to the first aid station, and the first aid station at Cocodona is crazy. Like everybody's crew is there. Everybody is at this like first 17 mile aid, and. uh so people are like, hey, Tony, hey, Tony. And I'm just like, whoa, man, this is blah. <laughs> so I grabbed, my, I grabbed my coconut water, and I tried to stomach a little bit of food. I filled up my two water bottles and headed on out. <laughs> and that's when it got real. <laughs> wow. About miles in, after that, I was like looking at the map. Cause we all got the map on our phones and I was like, wow, this section is a whole lot longer than I had really, I hadn't looked at it. I hadn't thought about it. Not even a little bit, but Cocodona has some big gaps, you know, there's 15 to 20 mile gaps constantly on that course. And this was one of those 15 or 17 miles and it was heat of the day. Like I said, I had my two water bottles <laughs> Oh my God. and about, yeah, five, six miles into that section. I, I had pretty much gone through most of my water and 
really didn't have much food on me. Um, so I sat down on the side of the trail for a little while, had myself a good think about life. And up to that, like at that point, I kind of felt like I was just holding on to reality. <laughs> like, the acid was kind of like the fun part was wearing off and it was kind of just like sinking in like, Oh man, look at how stupid you just were. <laughs> and, but then, you know, I also got it in me that like, all right, well, I'm going to live. I'm going to get through this. I just got to keep going. And the faster I go, the better actually. So I, I kept cruising and I finally got to that 30 mile aid and I was shaky and, Oh man, I just had to sit for a good 30 minutes and eat and get myself right. And so, yeah, it's like 30 miles in, I have felt like I had had three, four days worth of adventures already. Like I've, <laughs> my mind had gone so many places already and the journey seemed real long. And by that time, you know, all the leaders are, are way gone it's actually an out and back at that point. And so I could see that they've already gone down to the aid station. That's four miles past the 31 aid station and they've come back. So I'm like, all right, <laughs> I see Versteeg. I'm like, all right, you guys are gone. That part's over for me. So I got to the 35 aid station and had a burger, got me, got, got myself right even more. Um, took maybe even an hour there. And at that point I just started treating it like some of my long adventures that I've done. Some of my 500 mile adventures where I don't care about pressing. I, I'm going to take long breaks and take care of myself. And when I am going to get out there, I'm going to run. I'm going to uh, like, I like moving. I don't like walking. I don't like death marching. It's not fun for me. So, uh, from then on, I pretty much would, take one to two hours sometimes even three at the aid stations three hours at an aid station yeah yeah uh-huh that's I, you were sleeping or i got uh, a few times i probably overall so it took me about 100 hours 101 hours okay and i probably slept maybe 15 hours okay yeah and i gotta believe i rested mm, close to 40 hours wow so my moving time was, was pretty good. Like I think comparable to, to the leaders, they just didn't rest for 40 hours. <laughs> they rested for like two. And I think a uh, string bean slept for 20 minutes. That's insane. And what did uh, you finish in? Uh, just under 60 hours. Wow. 15. So he was averaging a hundred miles a day, whereas I'm averaging 60 miles a day. That's some tough terrain too, isn't it? Um, there is some tough terrain like around Jerome, uh, like, and that's like mile hundred, uh, oh, going up to Jerome, the Mingus, the Mingus trail. Um, and there, you know, the beginning, there's definitely some climbing at the beginning, but we didn't get the true course because oh, there was right. a and a course reroute. Had we done the real course, that's a beast coming up the Bradshaws, but we got to skip that. And we just did like a circle around Prescott. 
and then continued on with the course from Prescott. Um, so it wasn't nearly as hard at the beginning as it, as it would have been. And, um, definitely it's, it's not that much climbing over 250 miles. I don't even know if it's more than hard rock. I don't know either. It might, it might be like, it might be 40,000 or so over the 250. So it's, it's not totally flat, but. There's definitely a time once you get to around 170 where there's a lot of runnable stuff. Um, pretty much until you get to Mount Eldon and Flagstaff. How were your legs feeling? Were they just numb? Um, I've gotten I've grown accustomed to the like that that part of it. Mm, the le- the legs are almost never what stops me anymore. <laughs> like. I just know what it feels like to run on tired legs. And so even if that happens in mile 30, I'm pretty comfortable there at, in that place. Like I know my legs will keep working. It's just what a pain you have to endure. There's always going to be some of that, but um, I don't, I don't know. I think around day three, especially you kind of start to reach this like, weird you're tired but you feel strong again especially if you rest as much as i did Um, wind after that yeah so i actually once i got into my flow and i kind of stopped worrying about the race uh, i ran pretty good i i never got past i don't think i got past after mile 50 i would always just run past everyone rest at the aid stations and they'd come walking past me and then I go catch them a couple hours later, pass them. <laughs> so I was always moving pretty good when I was moving. Um, and by the time I got to the nearing the end of the race, I actually, the last day on day four, I felt, I felt the best I'd felt the whole, the whole race, including day one. Including wow. the whole part where it felt really good at the beginning. <laughs> um, something about the, you know, the adrenaline of knowing you're going to finish is part of it for me. I always get that towards the end of a race. But this was like long lasting for the whole last day. I probably had 35 miles to go when I woke up on day four. And man, I just hammered. I hammered it that day. And, the uh, final, <clears throat> final 22, uh, my buddy, uh, Wit showed up with Wisebaum, who also paced, uh, string bean for the last 22. He paced string bean for probably like 70 miles of his race. And then oh. he rested for a day and a half and then came and paced me for the last 22 of my race. <laughs> oh my <gosh. laughs> Was so yeah, I watched the uh, live of stream being going up Eldon. It was just incredible to watch his pacer. I'm just like, man, that's a like that's a professional pacer right there. He just had his hand out the whole time. Like oh, every yeah, time I he every time he climbed a rock, it was like he had his hand up just to make sure he wasn't gonna fall back. I'm like, man, that's a guy who knows what he's doing. But yeah, man, yeah, no, it's great. And he was such a boost. He was a, he surprised me. I didn't I knew he was pacing string beans, so I didn't expect him to to come show up for me. Yep. I hadn't had a pacer the whole race. I kind of just assumed I'd finish it that way. 
And I showed up at that 20, 22 to go aid station. And there he was. And I, man, I was cruising at that point when I got there. And so I was pumped to see him because I knew we were, ju- we were just going to go fly. And yeah, we, we moved pretty good. And the whole time he's like, man, this is so much faster than string bean and pumping up my ego. And, <laughs> <laughs> and he's on the phone with string bean part of the time. Oh and he's like, bro, bro, this dude's going so much faster than you. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Uh, man, I, I smashed Eldon. Like, I mean, Wit was having trouble keeping up with me going up. He was not worried about holding me up going up that. Like, I was, I probably from 22 past 10 or 15 people, which in a race like that is like, these are serious people. I like that have been running for just as many days and to come flying past them at the end, you know. Everyone's like, what the fuck you been waiting for, man? (laughs) 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 Like, I just started feeling this good, so I'm using it. So, um, yeah, I I went up Eldon pretty fast and then came down it real fast because I smelled the barn and could not wait. I, You know, all my, like, failed expectations and things like that kind of kind of struck me and I was like, well, shoot, I, I at least can win this section. And I'm pretty sure if you look at like everybody's, um, segment times on that, I'm pretty sure I probably ran the fastest one. Um, it's like, at least I can do that and I can finish strong. And that's a big part of what I like to do is, uh, verse actually told me this a long time ago. He said, if you can't wake up and do it tomorrow, it's not real. And that was after he had just set the Arizona trail record where he he woke up day after day for 16 days and ran 50 miles on crazy terrain. And I was like, I think I should believe him when he says something like that. (laughs) So, you know, I've always made it my goal to like take care of myself enough during these things to where I can then turn around and do it again the next day, do it again the next day, do it again the next day. So that's always been one of my bigger goals. So for me to finish strong was like, it was a, it was a slight victory at least just for myself. What was it like coming down into Flagstaff from Buff Park? Oh Oh, man, my adrenaline was pumping. I think, I think if you watch the stream, like I was flying, uh, I, I put down a like one seven minute mile there, uh-huh. uh, but uh, probably like consistent eights and high sevens and yeah, that was I was feeling pretty good. <laughs> I remember watching the live stream and the the camera guy was like, "He's cruising, <laughs> he's flying." <laughs> yeah. Then you have to turn the corner into the square. Oh man! And the lights, there, the stoplights. There was a bunch of street crossings, yeah. And I just like, ah uh, man, I didn't even really realize that like I was on camera and that, like people were watching because I was just crossing the streets like, like the big city kid that I am. Like, I don't really care if my light's green, uh, <laughs> if there's no car, an immediate 
vicinity of me, I'm crossing the street and I'm going to cross it real fast. So don't worry. <laughs> but that was a little scary with like wit behind me and the cameraman behind me. And like in hindsight, I wish I would have thought of that a little more, but you know, I was pretty pumped up. So <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you're just ready to get it done. Yeah. So just sprinting out in the traffic like an idiot. you're just like i'm so ready i've been out here for a hundred hours like let me go Mm -hmm. yeah and so versteeg's my buddy and a really good friend of his is uh chad trumbo and chad had been ahead of me the whole race and i was always like kind of keeping an eye on him and in the last day and a half to me it looked like he had kind of fallen apart and I was like slowly gaining on him, slowly gaining on him. And I always kind of hoped like the next person up was going to be him. Um, but I couldn't quite get there, but he was sitting there. He had just finished maybe 10 minutes ahead of me. Um, so I was, I was kind of chasing him a little bit. That was good. That was good motivation for me, but also just, yeah, something comes over me to just be able to be like, look, look, I can still, I can still run. Look, you don't have to be broken at the end of these races. I think that was <clears throat> the biggest lesson I had to take away was like watching a string bean, like crawl up that mountain. Like it's impressive. Don't get me wrong, but I just don't think that that's where I'm at with my running is like to go out there and destroy myself in the same way. Like I want to know that I can do it again, like run it back. Let's do that 250 again. You know, I felt like I felt like I could turn around and start that again. And that's that's it's become an important thing to me. It's it does mean that you kind of let go of winning because <laughs> that's what you pretty much got to do nowadays: go out there and destroy yourself for a day to win. Um, I'm just coming to this point in my life where I don't I don't think I got that in me. I won 150 miler once. That might have to be enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do like that though. I mean, you know, it's just, yeah, you're right. You're going to destroy yourself. But if you can't get up the next day and, you know, do what you love to do, then was it worth it? You know? Yeah. In the end, you, you got a little trophy that you hang on the wall. You may have a ultra sign up trophy and your percentage goes up a little bit, you know, which, you know, it's cool for everybody, I guess. But yeah, in, in the end, if you can't get up and go for a run the next day, it's, you know, you know, for the thing that you truly love and the longevity that you want to probably keep with it, is it worth it? You know, I I do like that. I do like that. I think a lot of ultra runners think in this real linear way where it's like, I start the race and I feel good. And then throughout the race, I'm going to eventually feel really bad. And then by the end of the race, I should be at my lowest. And that's just kind of like, I, I think how a lot of our brains work where you're just like, yeah, of course, by the end, I'm going to be the most tired. But I've learned through these long journeys that it doesn't have to be that way. You can sleep and come back and do it again and take care of yourself along the way. Take long breaks if you need them. Nobody's, nobody's back there with a cattle prod telling you what you have to do. Your body is the thing that's telling you what to do. And if you listen... You can just, you can maintain for a long time, but that, that is also with knowing your, how to take care of your body. And that comes with a lot of experimenting on how not to. (laughs) 
I was just yeah. going to ask you, you said a couple 500 mile journeys. What, what yeah. were these journeys? Um, so the first one was back in 2017, I think. 2017 or it might have been 2018, um, where I just uh, decided to run out my door in New Mexico and run to the start line of the Mogollon Monster, which is about 400 miles away. Um, so since my mom lives in Prescott and I live in New Mexico, I had always driven this way through the mountains and it's forest after forest after forest until you get out to the Mogollon Rim country that where Payson is and where that race is. And from the first time I had ever gone out there, I remember telling Jeremy who created the Mogollon monster. Uh, I was helping him mark the course, like volunteering the first year I was running it. And I was like, one day I'm going to run out here and then run the race. And he just thought I was an idiot, I think. Um, but I, that, I, it just never left me that dream of like going from forest to forest to forest and never leaving all that and, and getting there and then running the race. So it was, it was about five years from running my first Mogollon monster to then. And, um, do you guys know Matt Gunn started yeah. like ultra adventures? Yeah. Now um, races. Yeah. So he was a really good friend of mine and, um, he went, it was after he had left vacation races and he, when he went back to teaching, but he wanted to still devise this course that kind of included a little bit of all his courses, this grand master plan, 300 mile course. And since the 200s had started, you know, it started to become like realistic that you could actually throw a race like that. So he had this route all planned out from the Grand Canyon up to um, the Aquarius Plateau. Really beautiful. And I went out and um, and crewed him after he had started for like a day, uh, maybe two days before I got there. And man, he was just calling me, telling me how hard it was. And I was like, all right, bro, I'll be there. And I came and uh, from then on, he didn't have to carry like a big old, man, he had this silly pack on. And, um, So I started crewing him and man, it just was so exciting to watch him like follow his dream like that. Like this thing he'd been dreaming about and he was doing it. Nobody was watching him. I was the only one helping him. Like he didn't care. And like, I mean, he had the goal of throwing the race, so he knew he had to run it himself. <laughs> um, so on my way home from that, I was like, fuck, fuck it. I'm, I'm going to do my dream now, man. I'm so inspired. And I started backwards planning the run I had always dreamed of from my home to Pine, Arizona. And I found all the crew access spots and patched together all the parts of the trails. It took me a couple couple days to get home doing it like that. <laughs> um, and then it was uh, just a few months later and you know, I called up a bunch of friends and I set up 
eight days to go 400 miles. And I had friends planned out along the way that would come help me. And they even brought my truck along and my dogs. <laughs> um, so you're just going like 40 miles a day, 50 miles, 40, 50 miles a day. I did 50 miles a day. Yeah. For, for eight days. How early did you show up to Mogion? Did you get any rest? I had three days of rest. Three days. Yep. Yep. So I showed up. Um, yeah. It was actually like seven and a half days, I guess, technically, with how they count time on these long things. So then, yeah, I had um, like three and a half days, I guess, basically to rest. But my, oh man, the first day I rested, my ankle swelled up like I'd never seen before. Like, like I was a fat person and I am not a fat, like I'm very skinny. <laughs> my ankles are so big. I, could, I couldn't hardly walk on them. I was like, how the hell am I going to run this? And I went and saw this, this chiropractor in Phoenix and she was awesome. And just like pop, pop a couple things in my ankle that let him, let him get some blood flow. And I started just elevating my feet for less the two days and um i showed up on race morning to start line like i have no idea how this is gonna go i'm on 400 mile legs I, but i feel strong it's a weird thing after eight days you know like i talked about after three four days you start to really rebound and feel like your strength comes back a little bit and you kind of get into shape with it um but after eight days of doing that and then three days, I had no idea, but I felt strong, but tired. <laughs> so my dumbass just goes out as hard as I can. Really? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I led, I led through the first marathon <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, oh, okay, well, I think I'm actually feeling these 400 miles pretty good. More than I thought. Was this one of the journeys where you learned to listen to your body or? <laughs> well, you know, I actually would not take that back because I got to see if, if I could even compete. That was the first time I'd even, I was never in a competitive mind state before that, before I had done that big journey. And I started to be like, wow, man, I'm, I'm like a decent runner actually. So for the first time I had ideas of competing if I could. And so just going out as hard as I could, like, so what if I blew up? I, for the first time, I felt like, man, I'm, I was in the lead pack till mile 50. I was still in fifth. And uh, I'm still in 10th at mile 70. Somehow after the last, uh, from mile 69 to 71, my leg locked up. And um, probably took me 45, 50 minutes to do those last two miles. Of that section i was just laying down like couldn't get my leg to work so i hobble into 71 the aid station there and, uh, i'm like it's, it's probably like midnight midnight ish and i'm in 10th you know and i i go into this aid station i'm like when's the cutoff uh when's the uh, cutoff time for this aid station and these people didn't even know like Nobody's asked. Nobody's eight asking hours, sir. The goddamn cutoff. <laughs> like, 
no, nobody in 10th is asking you the cutoff time. So they're like, <laughs> uh, we, we don't know. I will look it up in the book, I guess. <laughs> Their so shift is going to be over like eight hours before the cutoff. So it was like eight or nine a.m. was the cutoff for that A station, and I was like, "Golden, I'm gonna go to bed." And I went and <laughs> um, I went to my crew vehicle and I slept like a full six hours sleep, and I I probably took like a little ibuprofen and went to bed because I don't I don't like taking any kind of pain medication like that while you're running. It's really taxing on the liver. I don't recommend that to anybody. I don't do that myself. But if you're if you know you're going to take a long rest, the liver can handle it a little better. So I, I did that and uh, woke up at like six six a.m. and uh, everything felt all right. My leg worked again. I felt refreshed. The sun was up and. I probably went to bed. Yeah, I went to bed in tenth, and I probably woke up in like fifty fifth or fifty sixth or something like that. <laughs> and then I just started like picking people off, and it's just something I love doing at the end of a race. It's just real fun when somehow you're still feel- and these people all thought I finished a long time ago. So everybody I passed is like, "Wait, you didn't finish? What are you? Are you running this again? What are you doing?" Like everybody had a lot of questions for me. The next day. <laughs> <laughs> he just comes out nowhere like a ghost. Like, wait, am I getting passed a second time by this guy or what? <laughs> yes, exactly. And just I'd like, be so pissed. I would just quit and be like, well, fuck it. How did you I'm not, not doing this again. Like, what? How did you not? That's how Cocodona was. I passed some people I passed about eight times. You know, like where, like they would just pass me. At the, I'd be at the aid station. They passed eight, ten times some of these people. And they're just like, what the fuck? are you doing <laughs> don't you know how to just grind like all of us and just keep grinding and grinding i'm like no i don't know i i don't quite have that in me actually <laughs> no. it's like I'm taking gonna, naps uh, six seven hours and a hundred dollars so yeah so then uh i ran that last 31 pretty good and i think i ended up in 35th place at the monster and i ran like a 30 hour 100 or something like that with but, six hours of sleep? Yeah, with six hours of sleep. Yeah. So, yeah, again, like moving time. Moving time was close to the winners, you know? Um, but I just, I just take a lot more breaks. That's all. That's cool. I like it. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> hey, so how did you get back? I drove back, yeah. Ah, okay. <laughs> I was just yeah, saying, like, you just, you just did this 100-mile race and sent it. And then you're like, oh, you know what? I'll just do the 400 miles back. Yeah, everybody uh, definitely was like, so you're going to run back now? <laughs> <laughs> and from then on now, like... Why not make it a 900 miler? Anybody that knows me now, any race I show, it doesn't matter where the race is. They're like, oh, do you run here? <laughs> like, <laughs> I drove just like everybody else. <laughs> no, it's in... Uh, it's the guy that runs here. <laughs> it's in Germany. There's no way. <laughs> yeah, so, so my the other hundred or the other five hundred mile adventure. Oh, oh, well, okay. So to finish up on the Muggyon Monster one, it was that's probably my crowning achievement. That was like the best shape I've ever been in, and the most attention I've ever got. I was I got into Runner's World, uh, uh, not not for 
tattletailing on someone, but for my <laughs> achievement. Um, so I actually got into Runner's World that way. I was on the cover, actually. It was pretty cool. The cover of Runner's World for doing yeah. your 400 mile pre pre your warm up for your hundred mile race. Yeah, they were like, "This is too weird not to put on the cover." He's in sandals. Like, what the, what the hell? <laughs> and the 400 mile to get to this race, I mean, is not, it was no joke. Like, it's not easy. Like, nothing out here is easy. These are, you, you weren't running on the road, right? You're running. You no, linked all the trails I, together. I had linked trails and dirt roads. I probably did about 10 miles of paved road for that whole thing. Um, and yeah, it was, it was about half and half single track to dirt road. So I did have some, even, but even the dirt roads, they were real remote, nothing too flat. I mean, out in the rim country, once you start getting closer to the race, then it gets real brutal. I did the, basically the Zane gray to end the 400 miles was, you know, 60 miles of the Zane gray course. Um, so I don't know many people that do the Zane Gray and then the Monster in the same week. <laughs> <laughs> the um, Zane Gray trail is crazy. I ran yeah. about ten miles on it, and I couldn't believe that there's that race. Oh man! And at that time, there had been a fire, and it was real hard to navigate out there. There was there's parts of that trail they hadn't got to that are real remote, and man, I was getting lost and just at the end of this 400 miles, the last 65, like came to a grinding slowdown and just, Oh, it all got real hard. It was for Steve's fault. He convinced me to not just run the easy rim road up top. And he's like, dude, it's going to be so much more epic. If you just, if you just run the Highline trail to finish this thing. I'm like, ah, fuck you, man. I know you're right, but <laughs> damn it. <laughs> ah, I could have been done like, uh, probably like that morning instead of that night. For the Don't last you just day. love buddies that love to talk you into stuff like that. Ah, man, it, it it did turn out to be pretty cool. Like to end it with with something that hard, and then go on to something really hard like the monster. Like, ah, oh, that's what we're out here doing is just seeing how much hard shit we can do. So why not? Fruit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the monster being as tough as it is was probably not near as tough as the 400 miler warm up that you did for it. No, yeah, that was that was a life adventure, man. That was like learning how to deal with. Uh, so my buddy who was supposed to do the first three days waked on me at 7 p.m. the night before, um, and I had to call my buddy uh, who lived in Tucson, who was supposed to do the end of my trip to come at the beginning and man he got in his car so fast and was there for me that night he showed up at like midnight at my house like you know i went from being like oh i don't even know if i can do this without my first three days of help to having like the most ex amazing experience with my crew where it was it was it was their journey too you know i was the one putting my feet forward but man they made it happen just as much as i did like i don't think i could have done it without them so it was this crazy bonding experience with everybody that came out and helped me too that um uh just way different from what you can get from a 
getting crude on a hundred miler, you know, like it's just something about traveling that much distance where they're in their car and they know what you're doing (laughs) every step. Like that, that was, that was the coolest part of that journey for sure. How many miles did they drive? (laughs) Oh, exactly. Right. Exactly. (laughs) That's true people, man. It is not easy. I once ran 30 miles or no, no, I ran like 10 miles during this 30 mile stretch that Versteeg had on the Arizona trail. I ran, I ran out like five miles and five miles back with water for him. So like, not only did I drive the way around, but then I ran out with, with stuff to meet him on the trail. Um, so I know what crewing, crewing's legit, man. It's real work. I always say crewing's harder than running. I, I think so too, man. I really do. Cause there's, there's zero glory. Nobody's, nobody's putting you on the cover of runner's world. Um, and yeah, just amazing friends that you learn like, wow, they're going to come out and give me like multiple days of their life. Like, <laughs> I got my first experience in crewing this year and I'd, I'd say the same thing, man. It's just like, it's crazy to be on that other side of things where you're not the one like requesting or demanding things, but you're getting demanding. You're like, Oh, whoa, 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 what's going on here? Like, yeah. so you have to kind of step back, but no, I, I, you know, everyone that's always come out and helped me out. It's just like, you know, you can't thank them enough, but I can't even imagine like coming out for eight days and then, and then, right. jumping in it, you know, for another hundred mile race. And then, and then driving your tired ass home. <laughs> and, and as a runner in that situation, it's it's really hard to maintain um, a joyousness with your crew. Like there were times where I was like, ah, oh, there's not dinner. Like the night four, uh, God bless my friends. I love them, but they're not runners. They were just my friends from home. And so I finished, you know, my 50 mile day on day four. And they were asleep. <laughs> and I got back and I had to like make my own food. I was like, uh, I was uh, like borderline depressed me because I, I, I was, like, oh man, I needed, I needed like a big old hoorah, like a, like nice job at least. And I get back in there asleep, you know, <laughs> you just parade through the house, turning all the lights on, like, wake up, I'm here. All right. Yeah. And my friend, she did wake up and like help me with a little bit of my food, but then I had to keep eating. I had to like get, make more of my own food, whatever. Like I love her. I'm so glad that it came out and did it. I, it was on me, man. I, I wasn't that clear with what I needed. Cause I didn't know. I didn't know what I needed. So how could I tell them everything I needed? It's only in hindsight that I knew like, I definitely need you to be awake. um but so uh, on that night man i really thought about quitting and man prestige showed up out of nowhere like he wasn't supposed to show up till the next day and he showed up at big lake i'm in big lake arizona like no service out there i don't know that he's coming i'm wearing a tracker so he knows where i am and he just shows up in the, like probably 11, maybe midnight. And he shows up and he's like, where's everybody? I'm like, what? Where's your crew? And I'm like, they're, they're asleep right there. <laughs> and he's like, 
oh hell no and he just like kicks into crew gear and just like gets everything i need so i can go to bed and then he's like i'm gonna have breakfast for you at 6 a.m be ready like and sure shit like i'm up he's got bacon cooking i'm like oh dude you just saved my whole trip man like (laughs) single-handedly he just like he just gave me all my strength back like where i was like i felt loved i felt cared for it's like people cared about what i was doing all right well man now i'm really gonna be able to keep doing it um and it wasn't just him i had other friends showing up that night that were planned scheduled to show up and they were also there in the morning and it was just this big like oh i got all these friends now i got I had like six friends out there at that point it was just like i just had to go through that one night where i had to make a little bit of my own food like grow the fuck up whatever right. that's <laughs> i mean in hindsight it would have been just fine because it's a little little pity party. Yeah. Like uh, that was the difference between my next big adventure. A couple years later was, uh, that was just, just me on my own. And so I actually was going to Tushers. You guys heard of that race? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. In the Tusher mountains. <clears throat> big. I like, it's kind of like a mini hard rock. It's a hundred K and it is brutal. It's a, it's a good race. It's one of Matt's races. And so I decided to hitchhike. Well, first I had a big mushroom trip <laughs> that really, really affected my life. <laughs> and I felt like I was on mushrooms for about two months after that. Oh, geez. Like I went deep. I went deep. I took a lot of mushrooms and like when I do psychedelics, I do them once every couple years and I go hard. And so that one had a really big effect on me. And I just, uh, got, got my shit ready. And I was just like, you know, I'm just going to go on a big adventure, man. And, and who cares if I, if I straw it or anybody knows what I'm doing, like I didn't Facebook it. And so I had about four days to get to Tushers and from where, uh, from my house, just left out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's by silver city, New Mexico. It's Southwest corner of New Mexico. Okay. <clears throat> um, so it's about a thousand something miles up to that part of Utah. Wow. <clears throat> so I start out just running <laughs> and I plan on hitchhiking. Um, but I just had it in my head that if I wasn't hitchhiking, then I was going to be running. And I had a, like a fast pack, like probably a 30 pound pack and, or no, it's probably less, probably 25 or something like that. And, um, so I just started out running. I actually, the very beginning of like, I had to help somebody who had driven into a ditch like a mile down the road. Somebody's walking at me. I'm like, <laughs> what the hell? Like who, who's this guy? He doesn't look like a runner. He doesn't look like he's exercising out here. Like he just looks like he's really sad. <laughs> and so he had driven his car into a ditch 
and we're talking and talking and he's like, wait, you live just right over, right over there. And I was like, Oh yeah, I just left for this big adventure. And he was like, well, do you have a truck? You could help me. And oh, I was like, Oh no, I literally have to go backwards right now. I got a thousand miles to go. I'm, I'm about to go backwards. So I went and got my truck, pulled this guy out of the ditch. Then he drives, drives me back to the spot that I, that I was at. And I start again from like one mile away from my house. <laughs> and then really good buddy comes, or uh, no, uh, another friend. And then a really good buddy, dude, it's like, I'm probably like five hours in and I've gone approximately three miles. <laughs> <laughs> and i haven't got a ride and i'm just like all right well it, it'll happen if, it, if it's if it's supposed to happen it'll happen i kept telling myself that and so i run another four miles and the sky just opens up on me just starts storming raining immediately somebody stops and gives me a ride i'm like I wasn't in it for more than 30 seconds. I just put my jacket on. Somebody stops. I didn't even, I wasn't even like ready to hitch. I was putting my jacket on and I wasn't even like trying to hitchhike yet. This dude just stops, brings me 20 miles down the road. And as soon as I step out of the car, it stops raining. I'm like, all right, this all feels like really meant to be right now. Yet I'm only 20 miles in and it's getting dark and I'm night one already. All right. Um, so I wake up the next morning and there's these hikers at the trailhead that I slept and I didn't think much of it and they come back from their hike and we get to talking. it's like, Oh, and they give me breakfast. Oh no. They went back to their house, came back, gave me breakfast, gave me a ride a little bit further down the road. They didn't want to go much past their house. So it was only another four or five miles I got. And then I'm running most of the day, not getting very far. But that evening, I finally got a good ride from this kid who was going back to town. But instead of that, he drove me away from town and probably drove me another good 20 miles or so. And then it finally was getting dark on night two. So I'm two days in. I have four days total. And I've gone approximately 70 miles at that point even with hitchhiking and everything. And I'll probably run, you know, 30 miles at that point. Almost, I've run almost as much as I've gotten to hitchhike at that point. And so the morning of day three, I'm just like, there's no way, man. There's no way. I've got 930 miles left to go. Like, this isn't, this isn't going to work. So... I talked to my buddy. There was a bed and breakfast in this really small town out where I was. I'm like, I'm just going to call it quits. I'm going to get a shower. I'm going to get some breakfast. And probably head on home. And I'm having breakfast. The guy's super nice. We're talking. Now, mind you, these are these are like COVID times. And it's all outdoor. outdoor. Someone told me to give him a little bit of the salt that I had because I thought, shit, my journey's over. I don't even need this anymore. And I, ha I have a fancy salt that I make as my own like electrolyte uh, mix. And I make my own tabs and everything. But I had a little bit. I gave it to the guy. And I bring my dishes from breakfast back. 
to the kitchen and he's like, come on in and have a conversation, man. Cause you gave us the salt and we want to talk about it. And we want to talk about like what the hell you're doing out here. And, um, at that point, you're like, you don't get like, I didn't expect to get invited in this COVID times. Like I'm just some random dude that showed up. Like I didn't expect any of that. And we're talking and this girl overhears our conversation and she's like, uh, you, you need to go where? I'm like, Oh, I'm trying to get out to the highway to go North to Albuquerque, blah, blah, blah. She's like, Oh, I could take you. And I was like, Oh, what? Maybe this could actually still happen. And she was going to only take me to the highway, I-25. Um, and then she was going to go to White Sands to do some sightseeing. Well, we end up having a really, really good time. And she's like, eh, I'll just drive you to Albuquerque. Which is a, like three and a half hours north of there. And at that point, when she said that, I was like, oh, man, I can really do this. I can actually still make it. And we got all the way to Albuquerque. And we were having such a good time. She was like, ah, screw it. I'll bring you to Colorado, to Durango, which I had a buddy in Durango, my buddy Marco, who was like waiting for me. And he had a buddy that was going to Tushers from Durango. But I just had to make it in time. I had to make it uh, the day before is when he was going out. So sure enough, I got to Marco's the, the night that I needed to. Woke up the next day, hopped in the truck with Cameron, and I'm on my way to Tushers. And it was just this amazing, like, how it all lined up. I, was, I still, I'm just amazed by it. But I showed up the night before, and... um Turns out it was the last the last time I was ever going to get to hang out with Matt. Um, I don't know if y'all know what happened, but uh, Matt committed suicide. Oh, I didn't know that. A couple of years ago, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was crazy. Like, if, had I not made it there, I, I wouldn't have got to see him that last time. It was crazy. I actually like went out. I went out pretty hard in the race. I wasn't in any kind of shape, but um, probably passed Matt early on in the race. Then I kind of blew up, and he came past me, and I was like, "Ah, I probably won't see you again all day, bro. I'm not feeling great." And then I ended up dropping at mile forty, and um, I ended up getting a ride back to the start the start finish and I actually got to see Matt finish like late in the night and hang out with him after. So had I just kept running, I wouldn't have got any of that. Like he'd have been in bed when I got back and, um, it's just all just kind of worked out that I got to see my best friend for the last time. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, shit works in weird ways. It does yeah. weird, weird ways, you know. It's like you you blew up on purpose. Ah man, right? Like in hindsight, uh, I thank God for those last moments I had with them. You know. Yeah. So uh, that means more than finishing that race, I'm sure. 
Hell yeah, it does. Hell yeah. hundred percent. Well, it, it was crazy because he actually said to me during that race, uh, I was like, oh man, you're, you're really going to finish this song. Huh? Like when he came past me, it was probably like mile 20 or something like that. I was just fucking around with him. And he was like, yeah, this is my last chance to do it. Oh, no. And I didn't, I didn't think anything of it. Like I didn't, it didn't click. No, nothing, nothing in me like really understood. I was just like, oh, that was a weird thing to say. The fuck? What are you talking about? Like, you gonna stop running or like what? So I got to think he was like kind of planning it because it was a few months later that he did it. I kind of, I got to believe he was thinking about it even then. That's crazy. But, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so that was actually where my adventure really kind of began actually on that one. Um, cause then I got a ride back to Durango and me and Marco ended up going to try soft rock. Um, and we got about 50 miles into soft rock. Uh, Marco was my guide and he didn't, he didn't want to continue. And he was like <laughs> telling me like I could, and he could kind of tell me how to go, but I had just been following him the whole time and I didn't feel comfortable with that. So I just called it there too. And uh, the next morning, uh, said goodbye to those guys and just started running home from Silverton. And, um, I was going to, my plan was to do all road this time. Um, and so, yeah, I just set out, set out for home from Silverton. Marco dropped me off, said goodbye. He set up a few like, uh, aid stations for me on the way back to Durango. <laughs> And, uh, let's see. Then I ran back to Durango and then it was a couple days to get going again. But I guess, so really it was kind of from Durango, the more continuous all the way home. So that was about 500 miles. Um, did you run all that? Yeah. I mean, I, I was probably running like 40 miles, 30, like high thirties, 40 miles a day. Cause with the pack, I'm a little guy, man. Like a big pack really slows me down. Um, and I had like Marco come out and help me for a day here and a day there where I got to move pretty good. Uh, you know, I'd cover like 70 miles in the days that he'd come out and help. Um, but I only had that a, a few times. Most of the time I was just out there with the pack and, uh, like really enjoying the adventure of it though. I would, people would stop. Cause they just thought like something must be wrong that I was out in the middle of the, these like real deserty places in August. It was hot and there ain't no water out here. And people are just like, are you okay, man? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> you <forced gump? laughs> and I, I would have these beautiful conversations with people. Okay. So, uh, part of my mushroom trip was, uh, I, I do hip hop also and in about three weeks i recorded 21 songs and like i had a little cd i'm not saying it's great but it was all produced by me and everything like i did a song a day for three weeks and had this cd that i brought with me and i was giving out and so people would ask they'd be like oh do you need something you need help and i'd be like no i'm good 
Do you want a CD? <laughs> <laughs> They're like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> <laughs> and they would just be like, what? This guy out here is giving me something. And then they would look for anything they could give me. Like an old Gatorade they had in the back seat, or like, like just next level, they were going to try to give me something now after I would give them the CD. I started to realize it was a trick at the end. But when I first started doing it, it was pretty genuine. <laughs> um, <laughs> Do you have a hip hop name or you just, what, what like? Uh, AT is my, is my, uh, my moniker. It? What is the, what is the AT? AT stands for Anthony, Tony. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's just, just my little stage name, but. Um, yeah, so that, that, that added a whole element to the adventure where, man, I would, I would stop and talk to people for hours, anywhere from a half hour to like two to three hours sometimes where people just like on the side of the road. Um, I even got to see like one of my really good buddies, Cody, who I've run with coming out of Silverton and he pulls over and like is waiting for me as I'm running down the hill. And he's like, Tony. So I had just like left Silverton. I'm maybe 15 miles out of Silverton. And here I'm already like, I got a friend who's like, he makes me coffee. He gives me a headlamp. Like I didn't even have like a good headlamp. And thank God he like showed up uh, like that night where he was like, what are you? what are you doing out here without like a good headlamp, bro? And I was like, ah, oh, the moon, man. The moon's good. <laughs> I can see. <laughs> it was like a full moon, but still like, uh, it was pretty silly. Um, so yeah, he's him and his son, man. We talked for hours and there's a little aid station out there for me. <laughs> so the whole adventure was like that, like just people wanting to help everybody just real, like only the best people would stop to help. Cause I wasn't asking at that point, there was no hitchhiking for me. Like I was not hailing down cars at all. Like there was, I was just out there running at that point to get home. And so anybody that stopped was just like a good hearted person that was just like, man, this guy might need to have some help. So I only met the best people, man. It was just the best people that would stop. This one lady cut me a check for a hundred dollars. Wow. Native woman, you know, and like, dude, she don't have a lot of money, man. It's just like a, a native living on the res, you know, like it was, it was crazy. And like this other native dude, uh, he was Navajo and, um, he saw me running, drove home and waited for me and like kept his eye out for me. And I got to near his house and something told me to stop. And I just stopped for a while and was like standing there, like, I don't know, messing with my phone or something. But I just took a little break, not on a good place, like just on like a, like a guardrail on the side of the highway. And as I'm standing there, like it gave him enough time to notice me, I think from his window. And he comes running out to the street 
And I'm like, what the hell's going on? Like, this guy, is this guy mad at me for like running out here or what? <laughs> but then I realized like he's carrying like a soda and like some fruit. And he's like running out to me like, hey, I saw you way back there. I've been waiting for you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and he invited me into his house and fed me like, I mean, it it wasn't great food. Like, it was like bologna sandwiches. What? But like, man, this man shared what he had with me. You know, like, it it was amazing. I like, I couldn't believe the amount that people just went out of their way to try to help me. Like, unexpected. You know, uh, that was that was the beautiful part. That's the thing. You know, when you don't have a crew, and you do these things alone. It gives you the opportunity for these situations because when you have your crew, or, I even talked to people when I was on my big bike trip who had just a companion, one companion even. And by having one companion, they did not have to go searching out, you know, human contact in the way that I did. I was any town I'd go to, I was like trying to meet people like. I needed to talk to you. I was going crazy by myself on my bike, you know? <laughs> um, so that, that's the huge difference about trying to go out and do one of these things by yourself is you do open yourself up to a, a lot of opportunities to meet people and, uh, I'll allow them to help you, which hopefully is, is like, like how the crew was part of my journey on the other one and they got to feel part of it. That's what, all these random people got to feel like on this, on this journey. Yeah. You were in small town, rural America. They were just, you know, they probably had never seen anybody do anything crazy like that or never, maybe you never even heard anything like that. So they're just like, uh, yeah, I got to feed this guy or he's going to die on the side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm sure they thought that. <laughs> or a Coke and a bologna sandwich, man. That's like, Maybe this guy 20 miles down the road would be somebody else's problem. <laughs> I'm skinny, man. I'm sure more they of a thought guilty of... conscious than anything. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, uh, but that's super cool. Like those guys just, you know, out, you know, in the middle of nowhere, just like, Hey, how can I help you? You know, like, yeah. cause I guarantee you those people have never heard of the things that, you know, that we do. Oh. And no, and I got no media hype. Like no, you know, no, nobody's talking about any of like this. So like, I think there was one like local paper that might have written something that I like somebody showed me later. Some random guy running on the road. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh like in Albuquerque, I had this really weird experience where at the beginning of Albuquerque, I gave this guy ten dollars because he just seemed like he needed it. And I wanted to help him out. Simple, easy. Well, on the other side of Albuquerque, like 30 miles later, some dudes stop in their truck. And this is, uh, so I've gotten to like, uh, this is like the, the, like the Mexican part of town, like South Albuquerque. And like this guy stop, stops in a truck and like reaches his hand out with a bottle of water. And they're like, Hey bro. Hey bro. We saw you on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm just like, what the hell are you talking about, man? Like, I ha I don't have Instagram, first off. <laughs> I didn't at, I didn't at the time. I was like, who the hell? What? 
how, how did you hear about me on Instagram? You know? And they're just like, Oh man, we seen you on, on, on there somewhere. And we knew you were going to be running by here. And it turns out that they were homies with that guy that I had given $10 to at the beginning of the day. And that dude had snapped a picture with me. And I, I, I wasn't even thinking that that's, that's what had happened. But man, these guys were so nice. They like went and got me more food and, uh, they got me some weed. <laughs> well, it turns out Albuquerque nowadays, all you can find is meth or heroin. They literally say, do you want like clear or brown? And I'm just, does nobody smoke green anymore, man? <laughs> you know, and, like it, it's crazy. like wild. I went through all of downtown everywhere, everybody. They wanted to get me meth or heroin everywhere. And I just like, couldn't, so I finally get to the Mexican part of town. And I'm like, finally, my hopes got up. Cause I know Mexican people still smoke some weed. <laughs> like, Cause nah, I mean, that's where I like, I grew up in that. And like, those are my people a little bit. Like, <laughs> I'm not Mexican myself, but I love, I, I love that environment. So I felt way more comfortable in Southern Albuquerque. Um, and yeah, these guys like, they're like, okay, we'll come back. We'll come back with your weed. Like, all right, man, I'm probably never going to see these guys again, right? Like, and I told them, I'll just be on this highway for like a long time. I'm going to be on this highway. Well, 15 miles down the road, I decided actually I was going to make a left down this other highway and I wasn't going to be on this highway. And so I was like, ah, damn, they're probably not going to come back with any weed for me anyways. It's fine, whatever. I'm just going to pee right here and then i'll and then i'll go and as i'm peeing here they come they drive up on the curb and like turn around like hey bro and they like got two giant joints for me like the big king size rolls <laughs> and i'm just like wow dude what timing man like they showed up right as i was about to be where they would never find me like, man, that, and that whole just experience of like, oh, you give somebody $10 and you make their day at the beginning. They put you on Instagram, their friends use it. They want to help you later on that day. Like just crazy stuff like that happened, happened like the whole way, man. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of cool. Like, you know, you said, you know, you said you had a crew in the other one. So the crew was kind of you know, your, your avenue that you would reach out to and you, you know, you didn't have that on this. Well, I'm sorry. On the first one, you had that on the second one, you didn't have that. And so, you know, you were just, I would assume just kind of going into, you know, convenience stores and getting Cokes and food. Yeah. And, you know, that was, you know, yeah. that's what I hear from a lot of people. That's what they do. And just, you know, you didn't have that avenue of the convenience of having a crew. And so, you know, it just, you weren't expecting it, but you had all these random people that just would help you out along the way. And that's just, that's yeah. super cool that, you know, small town America is still out there. And the, having know. not planned any of that, that trip, I didn't realize the huge gaps that I was facing. Like there was 30 mile gaps with not even a gas station. Um, there was big stretches with no water, no nothing. Like, and I just went out, you know, dumb headed and just, She's like, oh, it'll be fine. I'll be fine. And I was only fine because people stopped and helped me. Like, there was one point coming into Cuba, New Mexico, where 
I had just done like 26 miles and this was the first stretch that nobody had stopped to help me. Probably one of the only stretches really, um, where I did have to like four miles away from Cuba. I like dipped into this private property that looked like nobody was there. And, uh, like it was like this little complex of like a bunch of little houses and nobody was there. So I just used their hose, got some water. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> Sorry, I had to hop over your fence there, but I thought I might die. So, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'd assume a life or death situation. Probably no one's going to be upset with you using. You I know, don't think anybody like a couple liters of water. Nah, New Mexico people. I I think for the most part understand thirst. <laughs> what that means. <laughs> Is the running community pretty big down there in New Mexico? Oh, uh, no, no, not really. Like a lot of my running has been done in Arizona with like the R Vipa crew. Oh, okay. Um, uh, the New Mexico does have like, there's solid communities, uh, like really awesome people, but definitely not big. It's not a big community. Like Los Alamos has a really great race. The Jemez. Um, that's yeah, that's a good one. There's, uh, some people trying to start some stuff in like truth or consequences, uh, Las Cruces. There's a few things happening, but it's never gotten big. Not like, not like how Arizona blew up or Colorado or Utah. It's definitely the least active of all the Southwestern states for sure. So let's uh, talk about your, uh, 2018 hard rock experience. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> I've been hearing this story for so long. I just I want to hear it from the horse's mouth, though. Were you there, Robbie? Yeah, yeah, you were there. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember that. right before we went to bed, we were both. Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. No, of course. Yes. We both slept in our cars, and that's why Robbie is probably giving you a pretty good story already. <laughs> yeah. Um. Man, that was just such a silly day. So the morning of, so I've been camping out with, with like a uh, Jim Walmsley and like it was, where was that? That was a uh, Cunningham Gulch, I think. So in this race, that was like at the beginning because it was going that, that way this year. And so in the morning, all my friends that were, that were camping there, they were all like, Oh, we're going to go up to, uh, What's the first climb when you're going that way? Cutting it. Or I forget. I forget that first. But they were going up to that first climb to watch all the runners come past. And I had all my, I had like two dogs at least. I think I had both my dogs. And it just seemed like a lot to like have a ton of people and runners and crossing on the single track and all that. And just like, you know, guys, I'm going to, I'm going to just like head down the course and like, I'll see, I'll see everybody later. So I just kind of went off on my own. I kind of do that a lot. I'm kind of a solitary guy. I don't run with a lot of people or anything like that. So uh, pretty normal for me to go off on my own. I certainly wasn't like cheater chasing like people thought I was, I think, at the beginning. Um, but So I actually was trying to pick a part of the course where let this uh, plane pass. I, I picked a part of the course that I thought 
uh, nobody would be yet. So outside of Uray, uh, that bear, that bear Creek or bear something trail that crosses the highway right there. Yeah. Um, so I love that spot. You can just pull right off the highway. You can go down towards Uray or you can go up that trail that year. You couldn't go up the trail. It was closed to the public because they had landslides. Hard Rock got a special permission to go through that year to go up engineers. So I, I went down the trail towards Uray. I would have I would have much preferred to go up, but the way down's not that cool, honestly. And so I went about a mile and a half, which is all I wanted to do with my dogs. I thought man, I'll be off the course before anybody comes. Well, I turn around again, another one of these moments, right? Where I turn around right then, right then here comes Xavier and his pacer. And I'm just like, well, isn't that some freaking timing for you? All right. So I let him pass and I had my dogs. So I wanted to give them like a little bit of space. So I'm trailing at like a, what I thought was like a reasonable distance to give him like space. But I also wanted to be able to take pictures and be kind of like a little fanboy for a minute. <clears throat> and, um, so I'm snapping pictures and I'm just like kind of seeing what like a champion is doing at this time, you know, mile 45 or whatever it is at this time of a hundred mile race. And he's obvious he was like on course record pace. And I knew, I knew he must've been if he was there already. Um, so. I just kind of followed him up back up to the road and I had put my phone away. I was done taking pictures, man. I've done my fanboy thing. And I just kind of peek over and can kind of see the road and I see a vehicle and, and the backs open and I see Xavier and I was, cause I tried to kind of catch up towards the end there. Cause I wanted him to know that he could still go through. They had like, blockade for the trail going up and i was like i was just like we're gonna make sure like oh he's french maybe he just can't read the sign like just i'll show him make sure he goes up the trail so i like was not that far behind him so i see him at the car and immediately like i've, I've worked enough races i've thrown enough races been on the that side of things that i was like man every race i've ever known like you're not really supposed to get eight outside of an aid station it seems weird Maybe Hard Rock's different. I didn't, I didn't really actually know, but it seemed weird. It seemed weird enough to me that I pulled my camera, I pulled my phone back out and snapped a couple of pictures real quick. And it was just like, I don't know. And at that point, I went from cheering him on to like kind of side eyeing him as I walked by, where I was just like, huh. But they were all laughing. Like they didn't seem like they were like being sneaky or anything like that. So part of me was like, man, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. So I called my ex-girlfriend, like, Samantha, you gotta, you gotta look up. Like, is this, uh, is this in the rule book anywhere? Like, look up the Hard Rock rule book for me. And she did. She messaged me back instantly, was like, it's in the rule book. There's 10 rules. It's number seven, whatever it is. And then it's, said in another part of the rule book too, not just in that spot. And I was like, Oh shit. Now, now what do I do? 
uh, I've never been a tattletale. I don't like, I don't like being a snitch. Like that's, that's not who I am. So I had this real internal conflict. Um, and so Samantha's like, like you got, uh, like you got to do something. And so I went down to URA and I started to just talk to anybody that I, that I even kind of knew. Robbie, were you there? No. Yeah, we were at that pizza place. Remember with the whole crew? Uh, in your ray? In your ray, yeah. And you told everyone. We continued drinking quite a bit that night. That was after, <laughs> though. So I showed up at the A station. Well, that was... That, uh, yeah. And I don't think I had talked to you at the beginning. I, I think there was like just a couple people that I didn't even know very well that I was... Yeah. But I kind of knew them and I was just like, ah, I got to see what they think. And actually, everybody was like, ah, I don't think it's that big a deal. Don't worry about it. I don't think you should say anything. And I was like, okay, yeah. I was starting to, starting to be like, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe I don't have to say anything. Maybe they're right. But then I saw Jamil Curry. And at that moment, I was like, okay, Jamil, I know. Jamil, I trust. Jamil's thrown races. He knows the hard rock community probably better than anybody like he'll know what to do and i told i told jamil and sure shit he was like you gotta talk to dale right now like now bro like no this isn't even a question it's like there's dale right now he's right there and dale is almost always at headquarters back in silverton for him to be in Ure at that time, I mean, the leaders were coming through, but still, like, I didn't expect him to be there. And Jamel's like, he's right there, right now. Let's go talk to him. It's like, all right, here, here we go. <laughs> and I, I showed them the pictures, and Dale's like, all right, man, like, this seems like something. So I'm going to talk to the rules committee, and we'll talk about it. We'll get back to you just hang around here about like a half hour hour later he comes and finds me again and he has the rules committee like a few guys with him the rd and a couple other guys and um all of us you know after i told the story like ah they didn't seem like they were like being sneaky or devious or they just seemed like they were laughing having a good time like so we all came to the conclusion that, well, we're going to ask them about it. If they tell us the truth, then we'll just tell them not to do it anymore. And like a slap on the wrist, basically. Like, we'll just assume it's because you're French and you didn't read the rules or, or whatever. Like they were totally ready to just let it go. But, and that's when like, you know, I went to bed thinking, like, as long like I didn't think anything was gonna happen. I thought for sure they just tell the truth about it, no big deal. Well, I wake up the next morning, and Samantha's calling me and calling me, and I pick up. Like, what did you do? <laughs> did you see what you did? <laughs> No, what did I do? 
I just woke up. What do you mean? <laughs> well, got him. You got him DQ'd. I was like, "What? No way! What?" And she was like, "They lied. They lied. They must have lied." And I was like, "Oh no! I, I think I said that. Like, oh, they they must have lied. Oh shit! Oh my god! They actually lied and they got DQ'd. And what the? Oh man!" And uh, then it was just a shit storm. The whole next day was just. I think I got interviewed by like Megan Hicks that day and um, just everybody was, had all kinds of questions for me. Um, but those were only the people that were there that knew that it was me that thought. And it wasn't until, um, I don't know if it was Xavier or his crew or other people. I'm not sure who it was, but somebody started posting something about, how Hard Rock was in the wrong for DQing him because Hard Rock didn't really let the story out. Hard Rock just said, like, he got DQ'd. They didn't say why. They didn't defend themselves. They didn't want to, like, put him on blast. And so to me, they were being super respectful. And then everybody talking shit about them was just didn't know the story. And so my dumbass thought, well, I'll set the story straight then. How about that? <laughs> and I got on my Facebook <laughs> and I was like, look, it was me that was there and saw it. And this is what happened. And it's actually not on hard rock because they actually lied. And like, this is all the, this is what really happened here. Well, I didn't really realize what not having a private setting on your Facebook could do in a situation like that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Just, just about all of France, I think, I think was, was pretty well pissed off at me. Um, that's what it felt like at least like, uh, I had a whole country that really hated me, which is funny. <laughs> as I'm French. I'm part French. I have a quarter of French in me. The World Cup was that year, the, and France had won that year. I had been rooting for them. I actually made money on them because I really liked France. I was really rooting for Xavier until I saw him behind that car. Like, so the whole like France being mad at me, I'm like, damn, this is like one of my roots and like my people like that are like real mad at me, man. <laughs> Um, and dude, I was getting like threats and just people were just trolling me real hard, but I, I didn't, I didn't, I never made my Facebook private because at that, at that point I was like, no, nah, you know, let, let people say what it, people get 10 foot tall when they're behind a computer. Just let, let them do that. Like nobody's actually, you know, come to New Mexico, <laughs> my small little town. <laughs> um, so I just kind of accepted it. Like, whatever, they're, they're going to think what they think about me. Like, I know that I wasn't, I wasn't in the wrong, man. I, I tried to defend them, honestly, actually, with like the rules committee and all that. I was like, it just seemed like he didn't know the rules. So I think it was the lying over. part. Yeah, man. That, and that went on for a week with my Facebook and just 
There's all kinds of shit. And so finally, like, man, I have barely even been checking like my, uh, like my requests and stuff because I was getting all these fake, like Xavier accounts, like fake Xavier accounts were like trying to friend me all the time. And like, I kind of stopped looking at all that, but I, I did catch this one woman who friended me and then wanted to actually like interview me. She was, she was, uh, a French, uh, writer at, uh, I can't, I'm not even going to, I'm going to butcher it. I'm not, it's like a one year, uh, once a year annual running magazine that they put out. Point de coup or something. Uh, man, I forget. But she calls me up and wants to interview me. And I was like, yeah, sure. I mean, I'll tell you the whole story. And she calls me up. She doesn't speak English. So she has these two, uh, colleagues of hers that do speak English on the call. And at first they're like real, real aggressive with me. Like this is obvious. They do not like me (laughs) and like asking me questions like, uh, like why were you out there? Like what, what were you doing? And, and eventually like after talking to me for a while, one of them says like, Oh, you're, you're not an asshole. And I was like, yeah, I know. (laughs) <laughs> I, I didn't think so either <laughs> and and he's like well here in france like everybody is just like tony russ he's a bastard tony russ he's this and that <laughs> and i was like really <laughs> and they were like yeah yeah that's really how it is here in france. <laughs> you're gonna get banned from all the flights and <laughs> I'm just like, no, no way. Like, never go to france <laughs> like here was a bounty for you. <laughs> so they actually printed like the whole story, my whole story. It was like a 10 page article or something like that. Um, and they were, they were really surprised that I was a runner actually. Cause they just thought I was a cheater chaser. <laughs> they didn't think that I was just like out for a run. That I was just like part of the community that I like, no, they all thought like, oh, I was out there looking for that, you know? Um, so they, they actually were in contact with Xavier and they were interviewing him as well. And so they interviewed him after me and they, they had asked me, like, if you see Xavier, like in, in public somewhere, like, are you guys going to fight? Or <laughs> like they, they literally asked me that. <laughs> and I was like, uh, I would hope not. Like, I, I would hope that he could shake my hand. <laughs> you know, I'm like, realize that, like, hey, that situation sucked, but like, I didn't want that to happen. Bro, y'all, like, y'all lied. Like, I would hope he'd be able to own that. Um, and so they actually brought that to him. And after he heard the whole story, he was like, yeah, all right. I would shake his hand too. So in the end, they kind of like bridged that gap for me. to like kind of end that. Have you seen him since or have you talked to him or? No, I've never, I've not seen him since. I just know I cost him a whole lot of money. I know that. 
he he had like a bonus in his contract, like two hundred fifty thousand or something like that. If he won hard rock, wow. I wouldn't say you cost him any money. I would think that he cost himself that money, but yeah, most people would probably <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If he won, if they wanted to lie and played that whole game with Dell on the committee, yeah, I think they, they would have just said, okay, don't do it again, like you said. Yeah, at mile sixty, I think they finally caught up to him with a translator. And it was there that they lied. And then they had to like reconvene and figure out what they were going to do. So it wasn't until mile 90 that oh. they finally caught back up with them and were like, you're DQ'd, but do you want to finish? Oh <laughs> my like, God. He was like, fuck you guys. No, I'm not going to finish. It was mile 90, bro, that he got to. Yeah. So that was the other hard part, I think, for him. And, to go 90 miles at course record pace for nothing. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think part of the bonus was setting a course record at hard rock. I think that was part of his contract and he was, he was, he was on pace to do that. So yeah, crazy. <laughs> you wonder how much is, uh, outside aid or how much he actually got, you know, other than that one spot that he got from you, did he get more or, you know, how oh. much did that actually help or almost you know. certainly, right? Almost certainly they had been doing that. Like I'm sure they he had. had. Run, yeah. He had run it a time before. So my thought that he didn't know the rules was just being oblivious. Like I, I didn't realize he had he had been out there before. Like I'm pretty sure he knew the rules, man. Pretty sure they knew they were breaking the rules. And that's why they lied. I'm yeah. pretty sure. You gotta, but, I mean, you know, it's got to help a little bit to be on course record pace, but you know how much, you know, I don't know. They just, there's so yeah, many gifts out there. That's what like a lot of people were like, well, he only had like a Perrier. Like that's the picture that the damning picture that I took was him like kicking back a Perrier. And it's like, yeah, but you don't know what else he had. I didn't get pictures of everything he got from that vehicle. And Jeff Browning didn't get a fucking Perrier out there. No. <laughs> so Jeff Browning had to carry a life straw and drink out of the streams because that's a big, hard section and he knows it. And so he brought his life straw because that's what you're supposed to do, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And it, that was actually a really cool part of it too is uh, getting to meet Jeff after like, at the bar. <laughs> that was a pretty funny night. <laughs> yeah, bro. You were there for sure. Yeah. And yeah, just, just getting to be like, yeah, bro, you're welcome. <laughs> 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 I just remember, really I just remember seeing know. Jeff coming over to you and you guys were chit-chatting at the bar and he was just shaking his head the whole time. <laughs> 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 like what happened? How did I just win hard rock? <laughs> And turns out Jeff Browning is one of my favorite people I've ever met in the ultra running world. So if I could have won that race for anybody, man, I'm so glad it was him. Yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> He's one of the best dudes. So it all works out, I guess. Right. <laughs> right. You have any desire to do hard rock? Yeah, I, w I would do it. I definitely. I don't even apply every year. I, I think I've only applied once. So I'd only have like two tickets if I apply again. It's always kind of struck me a little funny 
like I love Hard Rock. I love the community there, but their lottery system is just to me banana. That's bananas to let somebody run it twenty times but not let somebody new in. Maintain your culture. Yeah, I get that. I I get it, and they do, and it's an awesome culture, and so maybe they're right. But to to me, as a as a runner with two tickets, it's like, shouldn't you encourage like more new runners? I don't, I don't know. So that I think part we talk that, about this every podcast. We have somebody yeah. on where we talk about you know that in Western states and some of those other ones like AC that are tough ones to get into that no one can ever get into you know new new runners take seven eight years sometimes to get into like western states but at least you know, western states, they, if, if you're really really good you can go get a golden ticket well yeah you can yeah but yeah, i mean that's still, that's still essentially you know the elitist the elitist crowd you know it's you know well, most, of, most you of the, at least work your way into it you could, yeah, you're right. You're 100 percent right. I, I was out at the 100K Black Canyon finish this year, and so I think all right. three of them were non-sponsored athletes, you know, and so right. And that's where it's like, hard to get out there. So it's not. It definitely doesn't even it up for everybody, but at least there is an avenue. There is. Or right. Hard Rock, like, how cool would it be if Hard Rock had golden ticket races? Yeah. Like every one of those races would become huge. Would become their own event. Like, uh, like Muggy on Monster doesn't even sell out every year, and it's a qualifier for Hard Rock. You better believe it would sell out in like the first ten minutes if there was a golden ticket. Yeah, if you open two of them, two golden ticket, and you gave three each, Mel and it female. Would just make, even I mean, though there's only like ten people that could actually get that golden ticket, it would just make it an event. Yeah, and that's where I think Hard Rock the. The, the guys there might be missing just a little something of how they could add to the community is like, man, you could just blow these races up and like make them a huge thing. If you would make them a golden ticket race and then you could have competitive hard rocks, man, like instead of three guys that are, and two girls that are out there competing, like you could actually have 10 guys and 10 girls that are actually competing. So, yeah, like That's this just race, like you already knew, like going in, you were like, all right, well, two of the three runners that you know are probably going to win this race. So, right. I mean, the names are floating around, but it was like, yeah, this, these people are going to win the race, you know? Yeah. Uh, no, I, I feel you. I, and I, they did just change the lottery system, didn't they? To the, I think they just changed, they announced it right before the race. I don't hard know. Rock or, or Western? Hard Rock did, yeah. They just changed the larger system. I don't think it's that much better, but they, I think instead of three categories, they have two categories now. Uh, so it's the, you know, the, I think the veterans got rolled into the, the yeah, people that have yeah, raced. Like veterans and extra veterans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This guy's done it 20 times. So we're going to give him a little bit more. And they even reward people that do it more. And it's like, this guy's done it 10 times. So we're just going to like let him come back and do it again. It's like, I don't know. That was that's one of the problems I've had at like the award ceremony, where they're like honoring these guys that have done it twenty times, and I'm like, I kind of think that's a dick move actually doing it twenty times when there's that many people that want to do it for it their is. first time. It is. Well, I, I mean, because he's qualified. Like, I, don't, I don't value that, man. I'm like, stop, stop. Let somebody else do it, man. And for like the average Joe, you know, the qualifiers are hard races, you know, you're not going out and running a, you know, a flat 
100 and getting into, you know, a hard rock with a qualifier from a flat 100, you got to run a legit mountain race to qualify to get into that race. So, you know, you've put some time and effort and training into completing that race to get a qualifier. And if you got to do that for who knows how many years, you know, that's tough to do where these guys are out doing it 20 times back to back to back to back. And you're just like, come on, man, like let someone else run the race, like do it a time or two, if that's what you want to do and then back off and let someone else take it. That's just, I don't know. That's going to, you know, that's, I'm an everyday Joe. I'm never going to be an elitist. And so that's kind of my thought process, but. Right. Uh, me, either, me either. I'm not winning no golden ticket. So that's yeah. where I've just been, uh, lost interest in, in kind of both those races, honestly. Yeah. But I do feel Western has a little bit better chance. Like there's an opportunity for a one-time ticket person to get in, you know, uh, but um, yeah. And you know, it's yeah. live. there's no secrets. Like it's, it makes it's it so where Western is competitive every year, it, it does the elite, you know, and it's, you don't even have to be somebody that somebody knew. You just had to go out and win a golden ticket race. Like that guy, Matt last year, or no, it was not uh, this last year, but the year before. And then he went and did really well at Western. I think he came in third or fourth. Yeah. It was top 10. Um, and, and those guys that did the black Canyon when I was there, I think the winner of the black Canyon wasn't able to make it cause he was a wildland firefighter. And I believe he was out fighting a fire during the Western States. Oh, uh, but so, you know, it kind of, then it rolled back. I don't know if they rolled it back or if it just kind of fell off. I don't know what the, what the process was. I didn't, didn't really ever look up on it, but he was a solid runner. And like, I was at the, you know, at the finish line and I spoke to him a little bit. It seemed like a super nice guy, just kind of a, you know, casual runner, but just, you know, not a casual runner because he's out winning a hundred K, a competitive. Okay. Not that casual. It's yeah. a competitive I mean, if one. you're, if, if you have a golden ticket race, it's not a casual, there's elite, you know, there's elites that go out and try to capture one of those golden tickets. Yeah. And so, and, but that's what I love about our sport. You know, I, I didn't run the hundred K, I ran the 60 K this year, but it was like, you know, you're towing the lines with, with people that, you know, are sponsored athletes that are out there trying to make their money. And so I, I think that's kind of cool. And, you know, there was, you know, people at those finish lines that you you're speaking to that are, you know, legit, you know, athletes and they're just everyday people out there at those races. I think that's one cool thing about our sport. Oh, it's, the, it's one of the coolest parts of our sport. It really is that like the champions are lined up right next to the person that's going to finish last. Like, uh, I really think that's a great part of it. And that's why, again, man, if Hard Rock did a golden ticket, every, every race that was a golden ticket would be like that. Just look at what it's done for Black Canyon City. Black Canyon City was a real small race when it, the first couple of years. And then it. it became a golden ticket race and blew up. Yeah, after I finished the, the 60K, Pam Reed was standing there. And I was like, Hey, do you mind if I, uh, get a picture with you? And she was like, yeah, absolutely. Sure. You know? And I snapped a picture with her and then she knew I was doing Bighorn this year. And she, you know, gave me some advice on Bighorn. Cause I think she's done it, you know, probably the 30 years that it's ran. Cause she's a badass. but you know, yeah. it's just, you know, she runs I everything. Mean, <laughs> it, it's freaking Pam Reed. Like, come on, yeah. you know, yeah. like she's, she is ultra running. And so I don't know. It's just like, it was just a cool, you know, moment. Cause you're just stand there just, hanging out just you know she wasn't running or anything she was just there just hanging out and watching the race and you know i came in like i don't know nine hours and something and she was just you know sitting there talking to me and hanging out and it's just just such a cool yeah. environment i love it 
Uh, Scott Yurick really had a lot to do with setting the stage for that. I feel like I think we all got to thank him a little bit for creating this atmosphere that champions are like not that different from the person that finishes last. And he, man, he would make everybody feel that by waiting for everybody the way he did. That's cool. Yeah. Like I, I, I really, uh, cause I, I, I had a buddy that ran Cocodona this, uh, this year as well. And, um, you know, so I, I followed it pretty heavily watching him and just kind of watching the race, watching the live streams, but just like seeing the crowd of all the runners and the crew and the pacers and just, you know, everybody that was kind of just out there supporting the race, like coming into the golden hour and just like cheering everybody on like that, you know, that's just chill bumps. Like, Oh, you know, dude. watching the golden hour at Western States, everybody that comes back from, you know, the people that won the race to, you know, the mid packers, like everybody is in that stadium when those people are coming in for the last, you know, I, I don't know. It's just like, you don't get that at any other sporting event. I just think that's cool where, you know, Joe Schmo, you know, me and Robbie can go out and just run a, you know, a race and well, I'm definitely finishing in the last hour, but you know, it's like, just cool that everybody's out there cheering you on and there's no, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm a paid athlete. I can, you know, I, I'm going to go take a shower and go home type thing. And they're out there just cheering everybody on. And then you could go up and talk to them and they're cool about it. So. Yeah. yeah. Joe, Joe was, Joe was uh, waiting at the finish when I, when I finished. That's awesome. That's partly cool. because Whit was there, you know, with me too. Yeah. But it, it was amazing just for him to be there. Like, he was like, wow, that was amazing what you just did on that last 22 miles. And I was like, bro, bro what? <laughs> you just won this <laughs> thing. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> what? You're talking about what you did. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, yeah, I, I didn't do that, though. And I was like, yeah, I had 40 hours more rest, dude. <laughs> what? <laughs> I can't believe you ran that thing on 20 minutes of rest. That's insane to me. Well, Tony, I think we just scratched the surface with you. I'm sure we could go on for hours with your adventures and stories. So one of the questions we like to ask all the uh, guests we have on is who should we talk to next? Who should we interview? Who, who do you look up to or who, who do you know that has good stories? Oh, Versteeg, bro. Versteeg. I think that's, that's who I would go to. He, he's definitely been my biggest inspiration. Okay. Like, just because he's such a good friend and we've worked together. So then when I was like seeing him do what he does, I'm like, Oh, he's a regular person. Just like me. Like we're not that different. And so I've learned a lot from, from him and I don't, I don't necessarily do everything like him. Like his, his style is to suffer. And to endure that suffering better than the other person next to him. And I, I come at it a little different, like we talked about, where I, uh, I'm not so much. Of, I, I know how to suffer, too, but it's not all about that. I talk about this with people like about David Goggins, you know, like. I think it, I think it's extraordinary what he can do, but then at the same time, I wonder if he had a little softness also, maybe, maybe do a little better, honestly, you know? And I think that's where like a Courtney DeWalter is really an amazing 
champion where she holds that joy. That's like Killian too. You can tell like these people are holding joy out there amidst a grip of suffering. You know, and, <laughs> um, I think Prestige has learned a lot about that, uh, especially with his like Colorado Trail um, adventure where he went to some pretty dark places there. Um, and just like that, that big question of what we're really doing this for, like, what, like, what does it, what does it matter if we go out and win a race or, or whatever? And that's where Versteeg has really taught me like the adventure and the, uh, the, the personal growth that comes from the suffering being like the important part and whether Mercy consciously knows that or not, he's taught me so much about that. Um, so that's, that's the person I would go to other than that. Uh, Jeff Browning is one of the smartest dudes and one of the best interviews you'd get. I'm sure too. Yeah. He's a great guy. Yeah. So uh, another question we ask, um, we know you wear the, the Luna, Luna sandals. What other gear do you use to run in? Um, I usually wear like a Solomon vest. Um, and other than that, I don't have any like real, real gear. Like I don't have any, you want so. I don't have any, like, <laughs> Yankee headlamps. <laughs> <laughs> Getting headlamps from friends. <laughs> yeah. Well, we really appreciate you coming on and spending some time with us. It was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Sorry about the other day. <laughs> uh, it's all good, man. <laughs> Life happens. Yeah. I, pre- I appreciate you guys sticking with me and making this yeah. happen. Yeah. It was a great conversation. <laughs> cool, brother. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been produced and edited by Backbeat Sound. Come and find us on Instagram at BackbeatSound1776 or email us at BackbeatSound1776 at gmail.com.